ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, it's Chickie Fitzgerald with The Game Changer, and we are going to help you change your game by helping you make better decisions. We are going to be interviewing someone who is known as the Decision Doctor, and the book is called High Stakes Leadership. And we are going to be talking about uh, leading through crisis, which is really what, what Constance focuses on. We're talking today to Constance Derricks. Constance, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it is great. And, you know, I tell you, we are in a time of high stakes. Uh, And we are in a time of lots of crisis on every front. So I imagine you are keeping quite busy. Well, a lot of people ask me uh, what other people should be doing about the crisis they're in. It's interesting. (laughs) That's the most common question is what should those other people be doing? Um, you know, and then sometimes it's uh, a leader that calls and says, I need help with what I need to be doing. And that's right. That's very rewarding. But I'm happy. Exactly. To, I'm happy to be asked either question. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Constance, you have really a fascinating story. And, and as a college dropout myself, I was very interested to see <laughs> that as a college dropout, you actually went and joined Merrill Lynch. And I'll have to tell you, my first job after college, and, and I went to Oral Roberts University, and my first job was at Miller Brewing Company. So here I went from this this amazing Christian environment to work in a place where when you go in to get your coffee, which is what you and I were talking about before the call, uh, there was a beer tap next to the coffee pot, so you could choose your poison, oh if you will. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure it's not still like that today. But uh, yeah. anyway, tell us a little bit about your story, because how does one go from being a college dropout to being a broker? Well, um, a lot of determination. Um, I really didn't realize it until after this book was written and I looked at the subtitle and I said, courage, judgment, and fortitude. And then people began asking me about my background and I thought, aha, I think those have been part of me to a greater or lesser degree since I was a really little kid. Um, You know, I've always been very persistent. So I found myself in need of a um, of a job that would support myself and my two daughters. And I was in the computer business and I couldn't figure out how I was going to do better, make more money, like my job better. So I went to the library and I literally got a book on careers and, um, and pay. And I, and I looked up jobs and stockbrokers at the time were earning on average of $90,000 a year in the United States. And that was in the 1980s. And I said, well, that sounds good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started out um, interviewing with brokerage firms that I did not want to join, which sounds really counterintuitive. But I knew that I didn't know enough to get hired. And I figured the fastest way to find out what they were looking for was to um, snoop around and that that was a good way to snoop around. So I got turned down by five firms 
in about a month. But every time I got turned down, I knew a little more than the time before. So by the time I walked through Merrill Lynch's door, I had a lot more information. I had a lot more confidence. Um, I probably selected what I was wearing, um, maybe a little bit better than I had in the beginning. And I just waltzed in there and, you know, said, I'm, this is what I want to do and here's why. And boom, boom, they hired me. They never asked me to fill out an application that asked for my educational background because then I would have had to say University of North Carolina at Asheville, two years, and then, you know, I wouldn't have been able to write down a degree. So they never had me do that. And when they asked me where I went to school, I told them, and they didn't say, did you graduate? So I didn't, I didn't volunteer (laughs) that. (laughs) It's kind of a a silly, a little bit of a silly story, but the, the office manager and I had a great conversation and he referenced a few things, I think deliberately, to see what my base of knowledge was just about the world and politics and all sorts of things. And that was easy for me because even though I was a college dropout, I've always been a really avid learner. And right. that's really what they wanted. They wanted they wanted then and they want now people that are intelligent and have a breadth of knowledge. Well, and, you know, it's one of the characteristics that I look at for most is that intellectual curiosity that mm-hmm. uh, do, that knows enough to know that you don't have to know everything. You just have to know where to find it. And you know, I just recently posted a, a job opening uh, working for my company, and, and all I could say is that I want a mini-me, right? I want me when I was 20, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was just exactly mm-hmm. like you. And I quit mm-hmm. school. Now, I didn't make it the full two years that you did. I'm really impressed mm-hmm. by that. <laughs> uh, I actually quit after six months because I wrote a paper called uh, uh, Looking at the Value of Experience versus Education. And I figured mm-hmm. with me wanting to go into business, you know, if I'd wanted to be a nurse or something, you know, of course I would have had to complete. But, you mm-hmm. know, I thought, I can do this. And so I came home and, uh, you know, again, it was the same kind of thing. Back then, there were no online systems, right? You know, for right, me, it was, right. it was 1976, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you did have to fill out a paper application. But, you know, it was funny because I went into a um, – I ended up going later uh, after I left Miller. I went to an employment agency, like not knowing that college dropouts shouldn't do that. And, and right. <laughs> they got they got me interviews. Uh, the final interviews were with a travel agency and with a, a, a law firm. And you know, if you have looked at all at my background, I've spent you know essentially the last thirty five years in in the travel industry. So you know which choice I made. But I I didn't even know enough to know that that was a barrier. So I you know again I'm I'm very very impressed with uh, with how you took that. But but you actually did go back and you. Tell us about why you decided to go back and get a degree, and it wasn't because you needed it for your job. You no, I didn't. Behavior that like, right hit I, you. Yeah, I didn't need it for my job. Um, I knew that I was not really thrilled with my job, but I I felt like I needed to have a clear idea in my head of what I wanted to do next before I quit. I didn't want to just, you know up and quit 
And so I was actually uh, working as a broker on October 19th, 1987, which is a date that some of your listeners will recall because the stock market crashed. Mm. And the stock market went down by over 20% in one day, which is still, to this day, the largest percentage drop on a single day ever. So there I was with a job I didn't like. Now it was not, I didn't like it very much, and now it was no longer fun either because our clients were terrified. They were calling, they were crying, they were upset. We were upset. And a few weeks after this happened, one of our clients went into our Miami office with a gun and he shot and killed the manager. He killed, he didn't kill, he um, wounded his broker and the man is now paralyzed. And then he committed suicide. And so we were not only in an environment that was frightening from a financial perspective, now we were literally scared for our lives. And our clients were afraid to come to the office because they didn't know if some other crazy client would come in. So I started going to people's houses and visiting with them and sitting at kitchen tables with those old oilcloth tablecloths, you know. Some of my clients were actually not wealthy people. They were very middle class and I realized by doing that that I was in the wrong job because I was able to help people move out of their crisis. You know, this is an ongoing theme in my life uh, to getting their sea legs under them and moving ahead. And I felt so good about my ability to do that, but that's not really technically a broker's job. And then I looked at my colleagues and I thought, you know, a lot of them make pretty dumb decisions and and they don't always give great advice. And so I started studying psychology and the effect of emotion on decisions. And then I was also studying decision science. Now, this was all on my own. I was literally going to a bookstore and kind of going back and forth between the business section and the psychology section. And once I realized I was in the wrong job, it became clear to me that I needed to become an expert in decisions. And to do that, you can't just study the rational side of decision making. You have to study the irrational side. So I got a PhD in clinical psychology, which surprises people. And I studied business. And so the work I've been doing ever since is helping leaders make uh, very high stakes decisions, um, either because they're in crisis or to avoid a crisis, for example, with mergers and acquisitions. So long answer... Uh, but it was a very circuitous route. I ended up getting my PhD at the same time. My youngest daughter was an undergraduate at the same mm-hmm. university, which was sort of hilarious. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. We would bump into each other on campus. It was fun. Now, so you've given us a couple of examples of high stakes. Mm-hmm. I spent, I, I've spent a large uh, percentage of my career as a strategic consultant, and, and mergers and acquisitions are my thing. But I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of the table from you. I'm one of the ones that they bring in to advise of, you know, should they do it, uh, not how to get through it, right? So I, I could have used you in a couple of, of my M&A activities, uh, mm-hmm. You know where things do start going sideways pretty quickly if if they aren't listening to the advice uh, that they that they get on what they should focus on because as you know they go in because it's easiest to focus on systems and products and you know they really kind of forget the people side of things uh, quite often 
um, and, you know, which does bring them to crisis. And, and clearly there are a number of other things that you get called in uh, because of. But I, I want to focus in on something that you said, and I actually didn't uh, read the subtitle of, of your book, which I normally do in the introduction, which is Leading Through Crisis with Courage, mm-hmm. Judgment, and Fortitude. So let's mm-hmm. start talking about courage first. And, and courage... Mm-hmm in the midst of crisis is, is really something that you're there to summon up because it is within us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of my clients, it's interesting how clients will give you the monikers that you need to use yourself. You know, a lot of people sit in their office and they go, what should I call myself? What's my tagline? If you just listen, you know. Um, so the decision doctor came from a client um, and another client said to me, you help me be courageous. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of good. I think I, I like that. <laughs> and, and, and so you're right. Courage, it's interesting. The word is from the Latin word for core, which means heart. And I think that's fascinating because if you think about the way we use the word heart, and uh, we say things like take heart. You know, and you think about the cowardly lion and the Wizard of Oz, right? He's a coward, and he's like, "Oh my only you know. Right. right. <laughs> um, you know, I need I need to have some courage. Um, and so, courage though requires something to regulate it, because courage that is completely unbridled can be reckless, and that that takes us right into the judgment piece, which you didn't ask me about, so I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're in charge of this. <laughs> well, I, I do want to say one other thing uh, about courage because in in your book you talk about the impact of culture, right? Yes. And and is, you know does the culture of a company impact the executive's ability to react in a courageous way, uh, or are there other cultural forces? that make that more difficult? Yes, there are cultures. There are some cultures where people are overly cautious. Um, I would never let a leader off the hook about that, though, because the leader is the one that needs to be courageous first. So if a leader says, oh, I can't do this because the culture, then I'm sorry, that's the wrong answer. Um, the leader has to have the courage to do what needs to be done. But they do get caught up in cultural norms. So, for example, a company that is mature, shall we say, and has people that have been there a long time and they have a history of allowing people to stay on the payroll well, you know, retired well on active duty, that phrase you've probably heard. Yes. And... Um, you know, it's one of the biggest mistakes leaders make is to sort of kowtow to that rather than do the right thing. It could be when the culture was formed and established and and that it made sense and there were good reasons for it being the way that it is. But cultures, if they're not infused with new um, energy and new leadership and thought, they become ossified. And anything that's ossified is brittle. So sometimes companies go out of business precisely for the reason that you asked about. Mm, Interesting. 
So is is courage a, a strategy? I mean, you talk about strategic courage. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us tell us how how that evolves. So strategic courage is um, the idea that the leader has to have the the guts, the courage, the heart to um, set out um, on a direction that may be a pivot point for an organization. And that's another place that I get involved is in strategic change because it's high stakes, it's high risk, and it's low visibility, which is how I define high stakes. And so being able to be courageous for some strategic reason, I think, is is a good thing. And it could be that a leader is um, needs more courage than they would display on a day-to-day basis. And when, when I'm involved, I will say to them, you're going to need to do these two things. These are critical. This won't work if you don't. And it's going to take courage. And here's what your courage needs to look like. Because courage is contagious. Yes. You think about it. Absolutely. And so is cowardice. <laughs> so you want the le- you want the leader to say, you know, we're going to do this thing. It's hard. We're not going to like it. So, for example, in in an acquisition, uh, it's called a merger, but in my mind, it was an acquisition, as many of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the leaders, and I was working pre-deal for on both sides, which was extremely rare to do. I mean, I was literally literally consulting to people that were sitting on opposite sides of the table. And it's too long a story to tell you how that happened, but it worked. But I said to them, you know, this won't work unless you have the courage to remove the people that are not going to fit in the new organization. You can't just move them in and then let them fail. That's unfair. You've got to make choices here, active choices. And they removed about 40% of the people. That was painful. Wow. But it was the right thing to do. And they ended up having to remove about another 5% after because a very small group of people um, were brought into the new company and then couldn't adapt. Mm -hmm. Um, But we we just knew the cultures were so different. The expectations about accountability were huge. And importantly, one organization was very focused on outcomes and the other was focused on inputs. So the one that was acquired was they were very good at tracking activity but they were terrible at tracking, at tracking results. Wow. And it just, it was not going to work. And, you know, these people, some of them had been there a long time. They were acculturated in a, in a low, low product, low performing culture. It's hard for people to make that switch. It's easier really if they go just completely break and go somewhere else. Right. Right. Well, and, and that, does bring us to the whole issue of judgment because one of the things that is most difficult in those transactions is doing the right things for the right reasons, right? Which is really the definition in my book of good judgment, right? And, and it's funny, I've got a a daughter who, uh, as I had mentioned to you earlier, she's 19 and she's going to the university of Warsaw in Poland. And it's really the first time in her life. And she happens to be studying psychology um, mm-hmm. You know that that she is really being taught about having good judgment. I think in high school, where my son is still at the same uh, private Christian school that she went to, 
they just kind of assume that you're going to have good judgment, right, because you're grounded in values, which is the first thing you talk about. But I want to mm-hmm. move actually mm-hmm. to the next chapter within the part of your book about judgment, which talks about bold discernment. And I think discernment uh-huh. isn't a word that is very common in our language because I think discernment isn't very common. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, and and I think that um I use the word quite a quite a bit as any of my clients will tell you <laughs> that um discernment is takes more effort than rapid judgment. Discernment is if you have if you're familiar with Daniel Kahneman's work on cognition and how much more effortful it is for the human brain to work on things that require a lot of thought to get to an answer that we're most of us are you know have some lazy streak and we like to leap to judgment um, and so discernment takes a little bit of a finer look and bold discernment to me is when you're you do the work, you do the cognitive work, the data gathering and everything you need to do, and then you say, you know, we have to get 40% of these people out of here, you know, or we have to, um, sometimes it's noticing the thing that other people don't notice and then being bold. So if you look at Sarah Blakely, um, she actually is here in Atlanta where I live, and she came up with the idea for Spanx because she was cutting one leg off two pairs of pantyhose mm-hmm. and wearing two pairs of pantyhose to get the that control top thing right, that right. Some, some women, some of us are familiar with. And yeah. um, so she was discerning about a need in the marketplace, and she was bold because she basically said, I'm going to put, I'm, I'm going all in, I'm going to make this work. And now look at the, you know, now look at the company. So in in M and A, this kind of bold discernment is um, critically important because you have to see you have to try to see what the other company is trying to obscure, not right. necessarily because they're fraudulent and not necessarily because they're bad people, but when you're selling a company, you you really want it to look as good as possible. And sometimes that means putting a little lipstick on, (laughs) (laughs) corporate lipstick. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. So you have to be you have to be uh, discerning when you're looking at a target. Right, right. So the the last part of the book is really about fortitude, and Mm -hmm. and you know really uh, again taking that courage, applying the judgment. Uh, you know, with that bold discernment, and then really being able to make it through to the other side, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so tell us about the process um, that that gets applied there, the process of discipline, leverage, and truth, which are, are really the components uh, that you you call out there. Right. So so discipline, leverage, and truth are to me elements of of fortitude, that fortitude without discipline um, can lead you to that run through the wall scenario, which is, which is reckless. You know, that's why you need judgment. So um, you want to be able to be persistent. In fact, I have in my book what I call the fortitude formula and I have 
mission plus vision plus persistence times character. And character is the multiplier in my view. Um, and and so looking at at fortitude in those elements, um, I wanted to make the point that fortitude is also not about force. So if you think about Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, the guy pushing the rock up the hill, right. and he never gets it up the hill, right? He gets it a little ways and then it rolls back on him. That you want to be, you don't want to be like Sisyphus. You want to be like Archimedes. Archimedes famously said, the, the ancient mathematician, give me a lever and a place to stand and I can move the world. Mm. So I talk about leaders need leverage and in order to have leverage, they need to know where to stand. And sometimes you'll see a leader flying at the wrong altitude. You know, they're in the weeds or they're, um, you know, they fly at 60,000 feet. Leaders have to be like helicopters. They need to be way high up for strategic thinking and they have to come down to the ground when it's necessary. And, and that is a, they have to have the fortitude and the discipline to do that. And then truth, uh, you know, to me, truth is just so fundamental that if you don't, if you're not dedicated to, to getting at the truth, the un, I often say unvarnished truth, and then all the courage, judgment, and fortitude in the world isn't going to help you because you'll do the wrong things. <laughs> very, very true. So, you know, as you take a look at all of these components, uh, you talk about creating high-stakes high leaders of the future. So how mm-hmm. do companies take what they've learned through crisis and then mm-hmm. create the kind of leaders that they need actually to head off future crisis. Right. Well, that's, you know, it's interesting because by the time I got to the end of the book, I realized that, that some of what I was demonstrating in the book and talking about more subtly was that if you are a high-stakes leader, you really do head off um, crises. So I talk in in the book about leaders of the future having um, flexibility, which I think is really critical, Um, having character. uh, I sometimes say you need character, you don't need to be a character. Um, But I think, you know, the most important characteristic to me of a leader now and especially in the future is the ability and the intention and the behaviors around learning that um, one of the big distinguishers, I tell leaders this all the time because I help them evaluate people, and they say, how come I always think these people are so smart and you think they're not so smart? Or how come I think they're this way and you say they're that way? And I joke and say I have a license to interpret. But um, people who do not, who cannot talk about what they've learned on their own and of their own volition, you don't want you don't want a bunch of baby birds in the nest with their mouths open saying, well, I don't have a leadership development plan. Well, then write one. <laughs> if you need it written down, you know, I told somebody recently, um, you know, I said, what are you waiting for? You know what you want to do. You know where you want to get. You know what you're great at. You know what you're fascinated by. And you know how those things connect to what this business needs. Go for it. 
Go for it. Right. Don't wait for the next workshop. I mean, if there is one that works for you, by all means. I mean, when I was with, I was with a global consulting firm before I set out on my own and I identified a couple areas I wanted to grow in and I went to my boss and said, I want to go to this workshop in um, San Francisco. This was maybe 15 years ago and it's $3,500 and, and he said, well, go if you want, but I'm not paying for it. You know, I mean, I hadn't even asked yet. And so I went, I paid for it. I flew myself out there. Mm-hmm. I paid for the hotel room. I ordered the cheapest thing on the menu <laughs> while I was there. And I met uh, I met Alan Weiss there. And Alan has been my mentor ever since. And I have followed his advice and put myself under his intense coaching and it's uh it's been a revolution in my career but had i waited for my firm to tell me what to do and when to do it and that they were going to pay for it i would never have met alan and my life would be very different Mm. well and and that goes back to behaving with courage really in in everything that you do right and and uh again you you used your judgment of doing what was right for you at the time mm-hmm. um and and again uh, your your whole career you know is is a picture of the fortitude so you know it was fun to hear you talk about using those terms as you look back at your your time of leaving college and and going to work mm-hmm. for Merrill Lynch mm-hmm. Constance, we have we have just blown through uh, a half an hour, and I, I want to be mindful of your time. So why don't you tell our listeners what the best way is to follow you, and you know, if they need someone to come in and help them through a crisis, how do they best get a hold of you? Well, one of the great things about having a name like Constance Derricks is that I'm pretty much it. <laughs> If you you type my name into Google, um, you know, you'll find me. I have a website, cdconsultinggrp.com, and I'm on Twitter. People can follow me on Twitter, and I enjoy following other people on Twitter. It's it's just been a really fun thing. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I post articles on LinkedIn regularly. I I just posted something recently about the Equifax crisis, and mm-hmm. had an article in Chief Executive Magazine on that topic where I'm advising the Equifax board in public. Obviously, they're not my clients, or I wouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, my phone number, I'm very easy to find. My phone number's on my website, and I return calls within two hours. Well, this has been really terrific, Constance, and I so appreciate your time. You know, our listeners... Uh, generally grab these these shows and listen to them on demand. So I, I know that out into the That's future cool. there are going to be people who just happen to pick this show when they are in the midst of crisis and, and do need help. So, again, the book we have been talking about is High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment, and Fortitude. The author is Constance Derricks, and... Uh, she said you can look her up easily, but the name is spelled D I E R I C K X. Thank you. Again, thank you so, so much. <laughs> and thank you. It's uh, been fun. I just hope you have a wonderful weekend. 
You too. Thank you so All much. Right. It was great fun. Thank you. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.